Volume Two, Chapter Ten of A Charming Fellow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Charming Fellow by Francis Eleanor Trollope. Volume Two, Chapter Ten. Love in a cottage is a time-honored phrase which changes its significance considerably according to the lips that utter it. To some persons, love in a cottage would be suggestive of dreary obscurity, privation, cold mutton, and one maid of all work. To others it might mean a villa with its lawn running down to the Thames, a basket phaeton, and a pair of ponies, and the modest simplicity of footmen without powder. To another class of minds again, love in a cottage might stand for a comprehensive hieroglyph of honest affection, sufficiently robust to live and thrive even on a diet of cold mutton, and warm-blooded enough to defy the nip of poverty's east winds. Lady Seely had joked, in her cheerful, candid way, with her niece-in-law, about her establishment in life, and had said, "'Well, Castalia, you'll have love in a cottage, at all events. Some people are worse off. And at your age, you know, quite between ourselves, you must think yourself lucky to get a husband at all.' Miss Kilfinane had made some retort to the effect that she did not intend to remain all her life in a cottage, with or without love, and that if Lord Seely could do nothing for Ancrum, she, Castalia, had other connections who might be more influential. But in truth Castalia did think that she could be quite content to live with Algernon Errington, under a thatched roof, having only a conventional and artificial conception of such a dwelling, derived chiefly from lithographed drawing-copies. It was not, of course, that Castalia Kilfinane did not know that thatched hovels are frequently comfortless, ill-ventilated, the noted haunt of earwigs, and limited in the accommodation necessary for a genteel family, but such knowledge was packed away in some quite different department of her mind from that which habitually contemplated her own personal existence, present and future. Wiser folks than Castalia are apt to anticipate exceptions to general laws in their own favour. Castalia was undoubtedly in love with Algernon, that is to say, she would have liked better to be his wife in poverty and obscurity than to accept a title and a handsome settlement from any other man whom she had ever seen, although she would probably have taken the latter had the chance been offered to her. Nor is that bringing so hard an accusation against her as it may at first sight appear. She would have liked best to be Algernon's wife, but for penniless Castalia Kilfinan to marry a poor man, when she might have had a rich one, would have required her to disregard some of the strongest and most vital convictions of the persons among whom she lived. Let their words be what they might, their deeds irrefragably proved that they held poverty to be the one fatal unforgiven sin, which so covered any multitude of virtues as utterly to hide and overwhelm them. You could no more expect Castalia to be impervious to this creed than you could expect a sapling to draw its nourishment from a distant soil rather than from the earth immediately around its roots. To be sure, there have been vigorous young trees that would strike out tough branching fibres to an incredible distance, in search of the food that was best for them. Such human plants are rare, and poor, narrow-minded, ill-educated Castalia was not of them. Had she been much beloved, it is possible that she might have ripened into sweetness under that celestial sunshine, but it was not destined to be hers. In some natures the giving even of unrequited love is beautifying to the character, but I think that in such cases the beauty is due to that pathetic compassion which blends with all love of a high nature for a lower one. Do you think that all the Griseldas believe in their lord's wisdom and justice? Do you fancy that the fathers of prodigal sons do not oftentimes perceive the young vagabond's sins and shortcomings with a terrible perspicuity that pierces the poor fond heart like sharp steel? Do you not know that Cordelia saw more quickly and certainly than the sneering sycophant courtiers every weakness and vanity of the rash, choleric old king? 
but there are hearts in which such knowledge is transmuted not into bitter resentment but into a yearning angelic pity only in order to feel this pity we must rise to some point above the erring one now poor castalia had been so repressed by low ambition and the petty influences of a poverty ever at odds with appearances that the naturally weak wings of her spirit seemed to have lost all power of soaring the earliest days mrs algernon errington spent in her new home were passed in making a series of disagreeable discoveries the first discovery was that a six-roomed brick cottage is practically a far less commodious dwelling than any she had hitherto lived in the walls of ivy lodge that was the name of the little house which had not a twig of greenery to soften its bare red face appeared so slight that she fancied her conversation could be overheard by the passers-by on the road the rooms were so small that her dress seemed to fill them to overflowing although those were not the days of crinolines and long trains the little staircase was narrow and steep the kitchen was so close to the living-rooms that at dinner-time the whole house seemed to exhale a smell of roast mutton the stowing away of her wardrobe taxed to the utmost the ingenuity of her maid and the few articles of furniture which lady seely had raked out from disused sitting-rooms appeared almost as brobdignagian in ivy lodge as real tables and chairs would seem beside the furniture of a doll's house a second discovery made very quickly after her arrival in whitford was still more unpleasant it was this that a fine london-bred lady's maid is an inconvenient and unmanageable servant to introduce into a small humble household poor castalia couldn't think what had come to slater and slater went about with a thunderous brow and a sulky mouth conveying by her manner a sort of contemptuous compassion for her mistress and a contempt by no means compassionate for everybody else in the house the stout whitford servant of all work offended her beyond forgiveness on the very first day of their acquaintance by bluntly remarking that well-cooked bacon and cabbage was a good enough dinner for anybody and that if mrs slater had seen as many hungry folks as she polly had she would say her grace and fall to with a thankful heart instead of turning up her nose and picking at good wholesome victuals with a fork moreover polly was not in the least awe-stricken by mrs slater's black silk gown or the gold watch she wore at her belt she observed cheerfully that such like fine toggery was all very well at church or chapel and for her part she always had and always would put a bit of a flower in her bonnet on sundays and them missuses as didn't like it must get some one else to serve em but when she was about her work she liked to be dressed in working clothes and a servant as wanted to bring second-hand parlour manners into the kitchen seemed to her a poor creetur neither fish flesh fowl nor good red herring all which indignities slater visited on her mistress finding it impossible to disconcert or repress polly who only laughed heartily at her genteelest flights but these things were not the worst the worst was that algernon showed very plainly a disinclination to sympathize with his wife's annoyance and his intention of withdrawing himself from all domestic troubles as if he considered them to be clearly no concern of his mrs errington indeed would have come to the rescue of her daughter-in-law but neither of mrs algernon's servants were disposed to submit to mrs errington's authority and the good lady was no more inclined than her son to take trouble and expose herself to unpleasantness for any one else's sake castalia and her mother-in-law did not grow more attached to each other the more intimate their acquaintance became they had one sentiment in common namely love for algernon but this sentiment did not tend to unite them indeed putting the rivalry of lovers out of the question of course it would be a mistake to conclude that because a and b both love c therefore a and b must love each other mrs errington thought that castalia worried algernon by complaints castalia thought that mrs errington was often a thorn in her son's side by reason of her indulgence in the opposite feelings that is to say oversanguine and boastful prognostications my dear algy his mother would say 
there is not the least doubt that you have a brilliant career before you your talents were appreciated by the highest in the land directly you became known to them it is impossible that you should be left here in the shade no no whitford won't hold you long of that i am certain to which castalia would reply that whitford ought never to have held them at all that the post he filled there was absurdly beneath his standing and abilities and that lord seely would never have dreamt of offering ancram such a position if it had not been for my lady who is the most selfish domineering woman in the world i am sorry to have to say it mrs errington since she is your relation and you needn't suppose that she cares any the more for ancram because he is her far-away cousin at most she only looks upon him as a kind of poor relation that ought to put up with anything and she's always abusing her own family she said to uncle val in my presence that the ancrams could never be satisfied do what you would for them so he might as well make up his mind to that first as last she told me to my face the week before i was married that ancram and i ought to go down on our knees in thankfulness to her for having got us a decent living that was pretty impudent from her to a kilfinane i think algernon laughed with impartial good-humour at his mother's rose-coloured visions and his wife's gloomier views but the good-humour was a little cynical and his eyes had lost their old sparkle of enjoyment or at least it shone there far less frequently than formerly as to his business his superintendence of the correspondence by letter between whitford and the rest of the civilized world that it must be owned seemed to sit lightly on the new postmaster there was an elderly clerk in the office named gibbs he was uncle to miss bodkin's maid jane and her brother the converted groom and was himself a member of the wesleyan society mr gibbs had been employed many years in the whitford post office and understood the routine of its business very well algernon relied on mr gibbs he said and made himself very pleasant in his dealings with that functionary what was the use he asked of disturbing and harassing a tried servant by a too restless supervision he thought it best if you trusted your subordinates at all to trust them thoroughly and certainly mr gibbs was very thoroughly trusted so much so indeed that all the trouble and responsibility of the office work appeared to be shifted on to his shoulders yet mr gibbs seemed not to be discontented with this state of things possibly he looked forward to promotion algernon's wife and mother frequently gave it to be understood in the town that whitford was not destined long to have the honour of retaining mr ancram errington mr gibbs did the work and perhaps he hoped eventually to receive the pay why should he not step into the vacant place of postmaster when his chief should be translated to a higher sphere i dare say that in these times of general reform of competitive examinations and official purity no such state of things could be possible as existed in the whitford post-office forty-odd years ago i have only faithfully to record the events of my story and to express my humble willingness to believe that nowadays nous avons changé tout cela i must however be allowed distinctly to assert and unflinchingly to maintain that algernon took no pains to acquire any knowledge of his business and that nevertheless the postal communications between whitford and the rest of the world appeared to go on much as they had gone on during the reign of his predecessor mr gibbs was a close quiet man grave and sparing of speech he had known something of the Arringtons for many years having been a crony of old maxfield's once upon a time mr gibbs remembered seeing algernon's smiling rosy face and light figure flitting through the long passage at old max's in his schoolboy days he remembered having once or twice met the majestic mrs errington in the doorway and could recollect quite well how the tinkling sound of the harpsichord and algy's fresh young voice used to penetrate into the back parlour on prayer-meeting nights and fill the pauses between brother jackson's nasal dronings or brother powell's passionate supplications 
Mr. Gibb had not then conceived a favourable idea of the Erringtons, looking on them as worldly and unconverted persons, of whom Jonathan Maxfield would do well to purge his house. But Mr. Gibbs kept his official life and his private life very perfectly asunder, and he allowed no sectarian prejudices to make him rusty and unmanageable in his relations with the new postmaster. Then Mr. Gibbs was not altogether proof against the charm of Algy's manner. Once upon a time Algy had been pleasant to all the world for the sheer pleasure of pleasing. Years, in their natural course, had a little hardened the ductility of his compliant manners, a little roughened the smoothness of his once almost flawless temper, but disappointment, and the, to Algernon, almost unendurable sense that he stood lower in his friend's admiration, I do not say estimation, than formerly, had changed him more rapidly than the mere course of time would have done. Still, when Mr. Ancrum Errington strongly desired to attract, persuade, or fascinate, there were few persons who could resist him. He found it worth while to fascinate Mr. Gibbs, desiring not only that his clerk should carry his burden for him, but should carry it so cheerfully and smilingly as to make him feel comfortable and complacent, at having made the transfer. I have said that disappointment had changed Algernon. He was disappointed in his marriage. It was not that he had been a victim to any romantic illusions as regarded his wife. He had had his little love romance some time ago, had it, and tasted it, and enjoyed it as a child enjoys a fairy tale, feeling that it belongs to quite another realm from the everyday world of nursery dinners, Latin grammars, and torn pinafores, and not in the least expecting to see Fanfreluche fly down the chimney into the schoolroom or to find Cinderella's glass slipper on the stairs as he goes up to bed. Romances that touch the fancy only, and in which the heart has no share, are easily put off and on. Algernon had willfully laid his romance aside, and did not regret it. Castalia's lack of charm and sweetness and sympathy would not greatly have troubled him, did he not know it all beforehand, had she been able to help him into a brilliant position, and to cause him to be received and caressed by her noble relatives and the delightful world of fashionable society. It was not that she failed to put any sunlight into his days, and to fill his home with a sweet atmosphere of love and trust. Algy would willingly enough have dispensed with that sort of sunshine, if he could but have had plenty of wax candles and fine crystal lustres for them to sparkle in. Give him a handsome suite of drawing-rooms, filled with the rich odour of pastille and potpourri, and Algy would make no sickly lamentations over the absence of any sweet atmosphere, such as I had written of above only put his attractive figure into a suitable frame and he would be sure to receive praise and sympathy enough and to have a pleasant life of it no he could not accuse himself of having been the victim of any sentimental illusion in marrying castalia and yet he had been cheated he had bestowed himself without receiving the due quid pro quo in a word he began to fear that it had not been worth his while to marry the honourable miss kilfinane and sometimes the thought darted like a twinge of pain through the young man's mind might it not have been worth his while to marry someone else someone else was talked of as an heiress someone else was said by the gossips to be so good a match that she might have her pick of the town ay and a good chance among the county people but algernon smothered down all vain and harassing speculations founded on an if it had been neither did he by any means hopelessly resign himself to his present position nor despair of obtaining a better one he persisted in looking on his employment as merely provisional and temporary so that, in fact, the worse things became in his Whitford life, the less he would do to mend them, taking every fresh disgust and annoyance as a new reason why, according to any rationally conceivable theory of events, he must speedily be removed to a region in which a gentleman of his capacities for refined enjoyment might be free to exercise them, untrammeled by vulgar cares. End of Volume 2, Chapter 10